It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That created starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a freaking listen to yourself to the world, but it don't need something to your own life. Beat it up and I've got no teeth. I'll let her put the platter with the fear fight down. I fire in the fire, but it's just a gang from the government for hiring the combat site. But it wasn't coming in a hurry, but the jury beat it down your neck. Reporter, to the 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 and To the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. dark heart of the city, a mysterious figure known as Dr. Bones. Mysterious is right. I can't even figure myself out <laughs> here and there. I'll tell You've you. You've always been a mystery to me. Oh, uh, well, <laughs> you are mysteriously beautiful. So this is Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, and we are the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour. That's right. This is the Hour of Doom. And Bloom. <laughs> That's right. Hey, friends and neighbors, welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour. As the pretty lady says, a lifeline of liberty in a licentious world. I'm Joe Alden, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of DoomandBloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. And I'm Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And together we are the queen and the codger, the geezer and the goddess, the masters of disaster. And we're here to help the faithful few keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. Mm -hmm. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident with a circumspect squirrel? Circumspect means wary and unwilling to take risks, so I'm guessing this one's on you, brah. Well, our attorney says don't call us, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, and here's our disclaimer. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Of course you should, but you know what? In times of trouble, you got to show the world that you've got more sense than a hamper full of hotcakes and get the training and education that you need. While you're at it, how about a quality medical kit to go along with all that training and education? You need that, and there is no better place to get it than Nurse Amy's entire line of medical kits and individual supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. Compare our kits for contents, quality, and cost with anybody else's stuff. You'll agree our kits are the ones that you should have in your medical storage. And if you want more proof, just check out our testimonials page at store.doomandbloom.net and see what folks just like you have to say about our medical kits and service. On top of all that, our kits are approved for your health or flexible savings accounts getting towards the end of the year. Just look at our special HSA, FSA section in the store. And don't forget to subscribe to our website at doomandbloom.net to get special coupons in our newsletters. You'll be glad you did. Got an idea for a show topic or just want to ask the cranky old man and the pretty young lady a question? <laughs> well, don't you wait, Nate. Send us an email or sign up to connect with us in one of these ways. Many ways. First of all, simple way. Email us at drbonespodcast at aol.com. You can find us on Facebook at Doom and Bloom. That's an easy one to remember. We also have a group page, Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. By the way, folks, everything I'm saying, you can find at our website, doomandbloom.net. There's icons for all of this social media. 
Uh, we also have LinkedIn. We also have Instagram is Doom and Bloom Medical. Boy, that's a lot of words to type out. Sorry about that. Our YouTube channel, lots of videos. You can find that at Dr. Bones Nurse Amy. You can also look up Doom and Bloom. I believe it shows up pretty easily. But again, little pictures, icons at the top of doomandbloom.net. Push them to find all of the things we just mentioned and more. That's right. Hey, you know what? If you don't do that, then you're missing out on some really great content in the form of videos, in the form of articles, all sorts of news you can use. And I hope that you will check out doomandbloom.net. Have you ever heard the phrase, gone but not forgotten? Yes, absolutely. That's right. But how about forgotten but not gone? My childhood is gone but not forgotten. Ah. Well, my childhood <laughs> so is, is yours. My childhood is forgotten but not gone. <laughs> my second childhood, that is. There you go. That's it. Have fun, baby. That's right. Well, you know what? For some time, the Democratic Republic of Congo, I don't know how democratic it is, but that's what they call it, mm. has been in the throes of a deadly epidemic, Ebola. No less the same type of Ebola, well, maybe not the same strain, but the same disease that caused a terrible viral epidemic during the year 2014 in areas of West Africa in three or four different countries. Uh, I wrote about that epidemic a lot during that time, even wrote a book published by Skyhorse Publishing about the disease called the Ebola Survival Handbook. And in that West Africa, Africa event, more than 28,000 people got sick and 11,000 people, more than 11,000 people died. This time, there have been more than 2,000 deaths. And the issue is, and that's since 2018, and Mm -hmm. the issue is, is that you hardly hear a word about it in the media. And that is a real shame because it's the second deadliest Ebola epidemic of all time. Now, Ebola is highly contagious, not yet proven to be airborne, but highly contagious. And this outbreak of Ebola has about a 60% death rate. There are about 3,000, 4,000, I think there's less than 4,000 cases and Mm -hmm. more than 2,000 dead. Treatment has been really difficult because the political situation there is unsettled. There are warring factions in the areas involved. Uh, But public outcry has led to the administration of more than 200,000 doses of a recently approved virus uh, virus vaccine. Wow. A a surprisingly small number of cases have seemed to turn up in neighboring countries, which sort of surprises me because a lot of that the borders of these countries are probably not policed very well. And it's uh, actually... Congo is a pretty big country if I look at it on the map in, in Central Africa. There have been one or two cases in Uganda and a couple of other nearby countries, but many people believe this. Statistics from these countries are very unreliable. No surprise there. As a matter of fact, the 34-year-old female physician died just recently in Tanzania, another neighboring country, of an Ebola-like syndrome. And despite this, The Tanzania has denied that any such disease is occurring in their country or any cases have occurred in their country. And sure enough, there are several cases that appear to be, including a family member of this physician, that appear to be probably Ebola, just not acknowledged as such. The World Health Organization believes the outbreak of Ebola is dying out, and hopefully, I hope that's true. It's important, however, to be able to recognize Ebola and other hemorrhagic fever-type diseases. So let's talk a little bit about what Ebola actually is. Now, Ebola is a member of a certain viral family, which has a lot of hemorrhagic fever-type diseases in it, the Filoviridae family. It was first reported, Ebola that is, in 1976 in the Democratic Republic of Congo, actually, where the current epidemic is occurring. Ebola is named after the river where the first victims were identified. Ebola has several different variants and like, well, like most viruses, has the capacity to mutate. What do we know about it? More than we did in 2014, but exactly how Ebola managed to infect its first human victim is very poorly understood. Primates like monkeys and apes are possible agents of transmission. We call those vectors. Mm -hmm. Although bats may be more likely to transmit the disease. Now, of course, bats, they can poop on the floor and (laughs) a deer walking by could certainly 
eat some grass that has some bat dung on it that may be infected with the virus. That's all plausible. So all those things are possible. The virus is known to be able to be transmitted to dogs, although they don't seem to get sick from it, and neither do fruit bats and some, some monkeys, indeed. It's simply a vector transmission type situation. The virus can live on surfaces for various numbers of days unless those surfaces have been cleaned with soap and water or chlorine bleach solution. The question is, are Ebola cases airborne? In other words, is the virus airborne? There was a 2012 Canadian study that suggested that the virus may also be transmitted in air droplets. And this study was actually up on official Canadian health department websites until two nurses were infected by an Ebola patient who actually managed to make it to Dallas, Texas. I hope you remember that. That was a big story back in 2014 from the nation of Liberia. Suddenly, however, the Canadians actually withdrew all access to this study with the reason given that it was causing panic phone calls to Canadian medical systems. So this 2012 Canadian study for was for at least a period of time taken off the web. I think you can find it still. Just look up 2012 Canadian study airborne Ebola and you'll find a little bit more information. Now, given the highly contagious nature of Ebola, an airborne virus would be big trouble, but the proof isn't there. It's supposed to be bodily fluids, contact with bodily fluids. Yet, at least, Ebola virus is thought to be highly unlikely to be transmitted by simply breathing the air in the same room as a patient. Now, could a victim's cough or sneeze send infectious saliva or blood flying and wind up inside your nose? Well, it would seem logical that it could. There's just no proof that it hangs around floating in the air and goes up your nostrils whenever you enter the room. Now, what does Ebola actually do? Why is Ebola so terrible? So, Ebola causes a hemorrhagic fever with about a 25 to 90% death rate, much higher than even the worst of the influenza epidemics of the last century. Compare this, for example, to the great Spanish flu epidemic of 100 years ago. That had about a 2.5% death rate. Compare that to a 25 to 90%, currently 60% in the outbreak in Congo. Well, and you see what I'm talking about. Uh, by the way, the routine influenza outbreak, every, the yearly thing, actually it has, does have a death rate associated with it. Also, it's 0.1% in most years. Symptoms don't start off with having a hemorrhagic fever. You start having maybe after a week, two weeks, maybe even up, as, up to 21 days after exposure, you get the sudden onset would have what appears to be a flu-type syndrome. You get aches and pains, coughs, sore throat, shortness of breath. You might get fever and chills. And malaise, that means just a general ill feeling, are commonly seen early. You may get nauseous, and that's often accompanied by abdominal pain. Diarrhea and vomiting can occur. Later on, though, it starts affecting other systems. The central nervous system, for example, becomes affected. You get headaches, altered mental status, seizures may happen sometimes resulting in the patient going into a coma. And, well, as you can imagine, it, as it progresses, it's even worse. What cause, causes a hemorrhagic fever is a disorder in blood clotting. The virus actually damages your ability to clot blood, and so you wind up getting bruising, you get broken blood vessels in the skin, you may have bloody vomit or bloody uh, phlegm, uh, so you may bleed spontaneously from your nose, from your gums. You may have blood in your bowel movements. Really terrible, terrible stuff. Once the victim reaches this stage, the likelihood of survival, pretty slim. Multiple organ failure, dehydration leading to shock, pretty much the usual causes of death. Now, it's thought that Ebola doesn't spread until a victim develops symptoms. As the illness progresses, however, all these bodily fluids with blood and, and vi a big viral load well, they become very contagious. And in areas with poor hygiene or lack of access to IV fluids, and of course the political unrest and corruption that occurs in some of these underdeveloped countries, well, it impedes the progress of medical authorities to actually tame the outbreak. So it can be pretty terrible. Treating Ebola, well, that is a real challenge. Unlike the bacterial diseases that Amy and I talk about in our book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, there is no specific treatment for Ebola, nor a lot of other viruses, honestly. 
IV hydration seems to have the best chance of decreasing the death rate, and that's only if it's administered early. If you keep these people well hydrated, well, there's less of a chance that they may succumb to the virus. There has been a new vi vaccine. I mentioned that recently. It's been approved for prevention purposes. The World Health Organization considers it to be a promising way to avoid the numbers seen in the 2014 epidemic, at least. It should be noted that Ebola is not uniformly fatal. A decent percentage will survive in most outbreaks, although some people do have long-term issues with sight or hearing. You will find that some people do have long-term effects. So why should an epidemic somewhere in Africa matter to citizens of countries like ours thousands of miles away? Well, with air travel making it possible to go around the world in 24 hours, well, every epidemic should be carefully watched. Standard epidemic precautions? Well, before an epidemic, whether it's Ebola or the flu, and hits your area, you should have a plan in mind. If modern medical facilities are overwhelmed simply because of the sheer number of cases, well, a plan of action should involve choosing a isolation room, a room, a well-ventilated, well-lit room that protects the healthy and keeps them away from the infected and certainly away from common areas where healthy people congregate, places like the kitchen or living room, things like that, where the whole family gets together. You have to keep the sick people away from the healthy people to decrease your load, your workload as the medic, and save some lives. Uh, you also want to learn to identify the symptoms of the infection, whether it's Ebola, which we just mentioned, the various symptoms, or any other infection. It's always important to be able to identify whatever kind of infection is having an outbreak in your area. You want to be strict about hygiene, about washing and disinfecting clothing and uh, countertops, things like that. You want to stockpile enough food and medical supplies, including dedicated eating utensils for sick people, including bedding, also waste disposal materials, things like that for the sick. You want to have a means of communication if the grid goes down, so hand crank radios are a good idea. You want to consider safe ways to dispose of infected materials that your sick people have been using, and you want to obtain sets of personal protection gear for the more contagious diseases, things like Ebola. You want more than just a face mask. You want to have certainly an entire outfit. We ha And Amy has those kits, uh, personal protection gear kits in her store. Uh, you also want to limit exposure to crowds unless you're wearing a face mask uh, and other protection gear, depending on the type of infection. And we actually put together a pretty decent article called The Survival Sick Room. I want you to check that out on the website at doomandbloom.net. So you'll find out everything that you're going to need to know and get in more detail with regards to setting up a good epidemic isolation room. I don't want you to give up on our medical system. Indeed, a functioning medical system, if it's a functioning indeed, has our, our system has learned a lot of lessons from previous outbreaks, especially those two nurses in Texas that got infected. And we have better equipment. We have plans in place that are better, stricter protocols to prevent infection than we did in 2014. But if you're prepared and your family is prepared, that's going to help an entire community deal with infectious disease outbreaks more effectively if the infrastructure that we have is ever challenged by just the sheer numbers of people infected by an epidemic virus. Well, if the world ends and there is a huge, terrible, apocalyptic event, it's probably not going to be an Ebola epidemic necessarily, although now you know a lot more about how to identify it. It may be just about anything. It could be a power grid failure. It could be all sorts of stuff. And it could be long-term. Uh, for example, an EMP would take out the power grid probably for a decade or two. And I think that it's important to be able to deal with injuries and other things that you may wind up confronting when your people have to do all sorts of stuff that they're not accustomed to doing. All you have to do is take a look at what's happening in Venezuela. I mean, I hate to keep going back to that, but it is a live happening in front of our eyes. Economic collapse, yes. Collapse. Right. I mean, it's just, it's all the terrible things that we've imagined that could happen in the years before when we were, you know, preparing 
are happening before our eyes. We have relatives, not relatives, <laughs> not relatives, but we have lots of neighbors. And most of the people in the area where we live are Venezuelans. I mean, we've seen there them been a protest. Lot of, yeah, immigrants from Venezuela. Yeah, a protest on the corners of our streets here in our city where we live. And these people are suffering back there. I mean, it's really, really bad. Hospitals have no electricity. Entire cities have no electricity. They were having the rolling blackouts or brownouts, I guess you call them. But now they're having much longer periods of no AC. Which is pretty no, bad. No, forget the AC. You know, that that's a luxury. We're talking about just not being able to turn anything on, charge anything. And can you imagine the hospitals? Right. The medical infrastructure has been damaged completely. As a matter of fact, I understand that if you go to the hospital and if the hospital is actually open and it has electricity, you still have to bring all your own medicines, all your own equipment, because they're pretty much out. Can you imagine so. if you needed to have a appendix removed? You've got to bring all the equipment. I mean, yeah. it's it, that's crazy. Who has that? Nobody yeah. has that at their house. Nobody has general anesthesia. You and I have tools yes. and equipment, but we don't have machines to administer general anesthesia right. or we to don't monitor. I mean, we do have heart monitors, but there's a lot of other monitors you do for general anesthesia. I mean, it's just insane. We do have canisters of oxygen, but we don't have anything that would actually knock somebody knock out. Knock somebody out. You know, like chloroform or things like that, which uh, they used it. Yeah, they used to do that in the Civil War. As a matter of fact, a lot of uh, surgeries were done under anesthesia using chloroform, which was... 95% of them were right. done under anesthesia. Amazing, isn't it? I, we, very few people know that. And it's a, a mixture of bleach and acetone makes a type of chloroform. Still very, very dangerous. Very dangerous. I bet a lot of Civil War soldiers wound up dying simply Not because of that. Not from the bleeding, right. but from the overdose of the chloroform. Right, yes. because there was no way to really... Well, they didn't have O2 saturated monitors, O2 saturated yeah. They didn't have, I mean, anything, EKGs. They didn't have anything. I mean, they were just like, oh, take a cloth, pour some of this stuff on it, and stick it on their face. Right. And good luck. And good luck if we wind up Close having. Close to their face, not right. on their face. Because it burns. Because it Cause burns. Because it burns. Yeah. Close to their face. I should be more specific. And they did have, we've talked about in the past, those devices that they figured out how to protect the person. Almost looked like um, an oil filter. Not yes. An oil filter. The, the funnel? The funnel. Thank right, you. right. The funnel. And if you turned the funnel upside down and you put the wide cone over the face and then had a little wider opening for the funnel then they would put that chloroform over that part so it's not touching the person. But, of course, when they breathe, they were breathing in some of the fumes from the chloroform. Right. Well, they would have a rag, I think, that they put in the funnel and then poured a little chloroform Drop in there. Two. Right. They and then could do that, yeah. Exactly, and had the person breathe like that. Like some sort of filter material. Exactly. Cotton or otherwise. Right, some, anything, really, whatever Wool, they happen to have. <laughs> and, well, and, and that sounds pretty far-fetched, but that's exactly what happened, and sure enough, that's something that could happen again if we wound up finding ourselves in this kind of trouble that, let's say, Venezuela is It happens. In. It happens in the world. The greatest societies have declined They've gone away. Think about Rome. That's right. Well, Believe me, the Romans at some point thought they were going to own the entire world, and they would never, ever collapse. So True that, and look at them now. Look happened. at you now. It happens. Look at you now, I well, say. Sadly, imagine all the advancements we'd have had mm. if they would have continued. That's true. They had indoor plumbing, for goodness sakes. It probably would have been one entire world just controlled by the Romans. Yes, but we might have flying cars by now. Flying cars. <laughs> Can't wait for that. Well, anyhow, we're talking about wounds here yes. that you would have to deal with as a medic. They're tough to deal with in any circumstance, but if you're the person taking care of a wound off the grid, well, you are going to have to deal with some pretty difficult situations. Dead tissue doesn't heal, so you have to make sure that you remove every possible bit of it from a wound that's trying to heal. And debridement 
is how you do it. Debridement is the removal of dead, also known as necrotic, or infected skin tissue to help a wound heal. It's also done to help remove foreign material from the wound itself. There are several ways to debride a wound, but which method is the most effective? That really depends a little bit on the situation. Uh, it's based not only on the presentation of the wound, in other words, what it looks like when you examine it, but also on a thorough history and a physical exam. Remember, this is not for when you're treating a wound in, in the midst of some hostile encounter. So you, this is afterwards where you're dealing with a wound that's got to heal. And so at least you have time to get this information and look at the whole patient, not just the hole in the patient. <laughs> that's right. Right, right. So debridement, it's essential for wounds that aren't getting better, so you better know how to do that. And usually these wounds are wrapped up, or are tra not wrapped up, but they're trapped in an early stage of healing. Wound healing is made up of three basic phases. I don't know if you know this, or stages. Inflammation, proliferation, and maturation. Let's talk about them. Inflammation, the first phase of healing, is inflammation. And if you're not doing a good job debriding a wound that it's got dead tissue in it or uh, terribly inflamed tissue, well, that body is going to continue to be trapped in that stage of healing, in the stage of inflammation. The body's natural response to trauma, well, after the wound has been inflicted, the body first wants to try to stop whatever bleeding is associated. So you have blood vessels in the area are going to constrict. They're going to seal themselves off. You're going to have blood clotting factors, create substances that form a clot and halt bleeding. And once you get this hemostasis, that's what we call blood clotting, uh, once that's achieved and the blood vessels are done bleeding, then they begin to dilate. And they let nutrients, white blood cells, antibodies, enzymes, and other beneficial elements into the affected area to try to promote good wound healing and stave off infection. And this is when someone would begin to experience, well, the physical effects of inflammation. You get some swelling, some pain. You might notice some heat and redness, some inflammation. Basically, that's it. If there's a lot of debris or dead tissue in the wound, it stays stuck in this phase and it's constantly inflamed. Now, the second phase of wound healing is proliferation. In the second wound healing stage, proliferation, the wound begins to be rebuilt with new healthy tissue. We call that granulation tissue. For granulation tissue to be formed, the blood vessels have to receive a sufficient supply of nutrients and oxygen. Very important. This new tissue allows for the development of a new network of blood vessels to replace the damaged ones. That's called angiogenesis. Angiogenesis. Angio means but All these blood vessels, words, right? Dude. And genesis is birth, <laughs> right? Right. Well, the color of the granulation tissue, by the way, is an indicator of the health of a wound. For example, a red or pinkish color generally means that the wound is healthy, while a darker tissue color, gray or or dark brown, or you know, definitely not the color of of the skin, depends on the person's skin color, of course is often an indicator of infection, and certainly if it's black, or inadequate delivery of blood to the wound bed. Now, in addition to developing granulation tissue, the body starts transforming certain damaged cells into what we call fibroblasts, and these are cells that serve as bridges that help healing. If your wound's healthy, these fibroblasts begin to appear within just a few days, maybe three days of the wound being inflicted, and they start producing liquid and collagen, connective tissue, basically, that help to strengthen the wound site. Now, during the proliferation phase, the wound continues to grow stronger as the fibroblasts continually reorganize and develop new tissue and accelerate the healing process. Now, the third phase, that's maturation. Maturation is also known as remodeling. That's the last stage of wound healing, and it occurs after the wound has closed up or has been closed up and can take as long as a couple of years, actually, to be totally, completely done. And during this phase, the scar tissues enhance their tensile strength. They become stronger. Old fibroblasts are replaced by new, more functional ones. And cellular activity declines over the course of time. The number of blood vessels decreases, and they recede somewhat. So you wind up having enough circulation, you have strength to the wound. While it may appear that the wound healing process is finished, when maturation begins, you still 
have to keep an eye on the wound. If you neglect the wound, there's still a risk of it breaking down. So you have to follow people that you've been monitoring their wound healing even after you think the wound is healed it's to make sure that it is not breaking down because of stress upon it or something else. It's not at optimal strength right after it has closed. Now, even after maturation, the wound and its scar may not be as strong as it was, obviously, before the wound occurred. Wound areas that are fully healed, quote-unquote, tend to be 20% weaker than they initially were. So you have some dead tissue, let's say if it's gray or black tissue, in and around the wound, and you need to debride the wound. Debriding the wound can help healthy tissue grow, minimize scarring, reduce the risk of infections, and you have to decide when it's necessary. Typically, it's used for wounds that just aren't healing properly. You want to give the wound a chance to heal properly. You don't want to cut anything out unless it's clear that that tissue is dead. It's, uh, that can be used also for chronic wounds that are infected and getting worse, things like bed sores. Debridement is also necessary if you're at risk for developing problems from infections. So if you see an infection that has caused some tissue death, well, you got some problems there and you have to perhaps perform debridement. Now, what kind of debridement? There's actually several types. And the best one would depend on the nature of the wound, the age, and overall health of the patient, and the risk for complications. That is for, let's say, the risk of how dirty a wound is. That, that would be a risk factor. Your wound may require a combination of these methods, and you might remember them better by learning the acronym BEAMS, B-E-A-M-S. And so let's talk about the different types of debridement. Mm -hmm. Biological debridement is B. B stands for biological. And biological debridement uses sterile maggots from a specific species of green bottle fly called Lucilia sericata. And they actually are able to sterilize these maggots. And the process is called larval therapy or maggot debridement therapy. They help wound healing because they preferentially eat old dead tissue. They also control infection by releasing antibacterial substances and they eat bacteria as well. Ooh, could you imagine like a pedicure with just a vat of those that you put your feet in? Ooh, right. Creepy crawlies. Right. They, that would be pretty <laughs> oh crazy. You're absolutely right. But that's exactly what they do. They actually take the maggots, they have them in a mesh bag, which is kept in place with a dressing and they mm -hmm. leave them there for, well, 24, 72 hours. They replace them about twice a week, okay. I guess, or at least you better replace them before feed. they turn into flies. Gotta right? feed, the new, yeah. feed the new ones. Right, new exactly. And one way that you can actually, if you have, a, if you're in an area where there are green bottle flies, you can actually kill a rat or kill, kill a squirrel mm -hmm. or have a piece of meat that's sort of rotting, put it in a bag with some holes in the bottom of the bag, mm -hmm. hang the bag from a little branch and put a plate underneath it. And over the course of time, flies will go into the bag and to get to the meat that's uh, through the holes, right. they'll lay their eggs and the maggots will start dropping out from that area and from the holes onto your plate. So how Can about that? Can I tell that? you how disgusted I am right Hey, but now? it is I know, I know, effective. I know, I know. It's alternative therapy, but I don't ever want to have to use that alternative therapy. Well, I'm Honey, a... I have your new batch of maggots. <laughs> oh, gee, dear, thank you so much. <laughs> but, you know, hey, if it works, it works. Well, all I have to say is that biological debridement is a pretty good way still to help with large wounds, wounds that are infected with, especially with antibiotic resistant strains of bacteria. Right. Of course, if there are no antibiotics, then maybe all you have. Yep. So this is something that is pretty reasonable. It's also used if you can't perform surgical removal of dead tissue for one reason or another, and you have to maybe depend on maggots. Now, E, the E in beams, B-E-A-M-S, is for enzymatic debridement. And enzymatic debridement, sometimes called chemical debridement, actually uses certain ointments or gels with enzymes that soften and liquefy unhealthy tissue. The enzymes may come from animal sources or plant sources, actually bacterial sources sometimes, believe it or not. And uh, they are very expensive, hard to get, obviously, 
especially for the average person. And you would, but you still, if you had them, we were lucky enough to have them, you would apply them once or twice a day and you cover the wound with a dressing, you change the dressing regularly. And what happens is the dressing pulls away dead tissue when it's removed and safely disposed of. So enzymatic debridement is ideal if you have small wounds that may have bleeding problems or high risk for complications if you attempt to cut things out surgically. In any case, off the grid, you're just not going to have these special enzymes, so maybe not an option in most cases. The A in beams is for autolytic debridement. Autolytic debridement is the least invasive. It uses your body's own enzymes and natural fluids to soften bad tissue, and that's performed by placing a moisture-retaining dressing, sometimes called a wet-to-moist dressing, that's typically changed about once a day. When moisture accumulates, this old tissue that isn't viable swells up and it separates from the wound. It takes time. It is the longest course of debridement therapy that it is possible to have. But if you have a situation where you're, you have people that are watching this wound on a daily basis. Very carefully. And... I, well, between you and I, I think it's it's the least invasive. You're not doing the least bad stuff to somebody. I know, but at least putting eyeballs on it to make sure something else isn't happening. There you go. And so it's best for non-infected wounds or chronic wound care for things like bed sores. And there are also dressings on the market, specific dressings that you can do that actually speed this process up. Uh, they're called hydrocolloids, H-Y-D-R-O-C-O. This is what my dad just put on oh. my stepmom's burn. Oh, okay. I had sent him these. Mm-hmm. We had ordered them. Good. And for his knee, remember he had yes, I remember. two knee replacements. The second one wasn't healing so well. We bought those dressings right there, and I sent, sent them to him. He didn't use all of them, and he just brought it out because my stepmom just got a bad foot burn. Dropped uh-huh. hot, a hot carrot on the top of her foot. Yeah, the I saw, burn is like saw the bur- a picture, good yeah. three to four inches Terrible. in a circle. Yeah, it's huge. I don't know what kind of carrot she was cooking. But anyway, it was not healing well, and so he brought those out, and he put one, on of, those, one of those on about three to four days ago, and he said it's healing really well. So anyhow, those are called, good, good, I'm glad to hear that. Those are called hydrocolloids, C-O-L-L-O-I-D-S, or hydrogels. There's actually... Hydrogels, yeah. There you go. Um, Of course, there is mechanical debridement, and we teach that at some of our classes. Mechanical debridement is the most common type of wound debridement that removes healthy, unhealthy tissue, that is, by performing a procedure that abrades it away, sort of scrubs it and abrades it away, and it's, it's... okay to use in either infected or clean wounds. And there are different types. There's, of course, simply using gauze to scrub the wound, wet, moist gauze to scrub the wound, remove debris. There's also uh, commercially available debridement pads. They're made of monofilament that you could use. Of course, you're not going to have those you know, off the grid. Ouch. But basically That's what you I can do say is, ouch. is you brush the gauze across oh, the wound and the get out. Wound. Oh, my gosh. And you try to do it as gently as you can, but it hurts, but it does oh. work. There's hydrotherapy in which you can use running water to wash away old tissue. It might involve a whirlpool bath, irrigation syringes, things like that, uh, other things that we talk about. And the other thing we talk about is wet-to-dry dressings. And these are damp, not soaking wet, damp gauze mm-hmm. applied to the wound. And after after it dries and sticks to the wound, it's physically removed, and that takes away the dead tissue. And this is very low-tech, but it's effective if you perform it regularly. At least twice or three times a day would be preferable, in my opinion. And then there's the S in beams, and that's the sharp or surgical debridement. uh, And this is the one that you probably mostly have heard of and involves basically taking something sharp, a scissors or scalpel, and cutting away the dead tissue until you get to live tissue. Dead tissue doesn't bleed, and so you simply cut it away until you reach viable tissue, which does bleed, and this can be done with scalpels, scissors, forceps. Uh, it just depends on the type of wound and what what kind of non-viable tissue you're dealing with. The conservative sharp version doesn't extend into healthy tissue at all. Basically, you're just getting to the edge, but there's more aggressive surgical debridement, and that may take some living tissue as needed. Now, of course, cutting away dead tissue rarely hurts a lot, but live tissue, if you're cutting it away, well, that's another story. 
In normal times, surgical debridement like this, especially which involves any live tissue, is done in an operating room setting. Of course, more than one type of debridement can be used on a wound. The wound may eventually granulate in on its own. Sometimes the wound is closed down the line. We call that a secondary or delayed closure. So that can actually happen. That might not be a bad idea. So debridement, something that you need to know that there, you need to know that there might be some wounds that come with some dead or dying tissue that just didn't make it. And you've got to get Especially rid of that burns. tissue. I mean, right. that's probably the most common. Oh yeah. Well, burns definitely you'll out. find dead tissue exactly. and that's got to go if you're going to get beyond the inflammation stage of healing. That's right. Hey, you know, we're proud to be members of the Expert Council for Jack Spierko's Survival Podcast, the granddaddy of all survival podcasts. I think he's done like 2,500 or more episodes. And we get to answer some medical questions from his listeners and from our listeners on it. And we hope that you will enjoy these little vignettes that we have, simple questions asked by regular folks just like you. And, of course, we always encourage you to ask questions. Send us an email at drbonespodcast at aol.com, and we may talk about it on our next show. So without further ado, here is a question for the expert counsel. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand posts, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness. I'm also the co-author of the Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, The Survival Medicine Handbook, now in its 700-page third edition, also Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials in Austere Settings, and designer of an entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Today's question for the expert counsel is from Matt, who writes, I was recently diagnosed with type 2 diabetes and was wondering about my long-term preps, food, meds, and etc. Background, I'm 40. I was diagnosed in December. A1C is 9. I'll explain that in a minute. I have a severe family history of type 2. Everyone has it. Rest of the blood panels are okay, though. Prescribed 1,000 milligrams of metformin twice daily and an insulin stabilizer called Victoza 1.2 milligrams once daily. With proper medication, a militant diet regimen, and exercise, I keep my sugar at 110 on a 90-day average. Question, what can I do for long-term food and or medication storage? Most of my current foods are the basics, beans and rice. Is there a better shelf-stable option for metformin? And is there anything I should be considering or have overlooked on the health or prepping side? And what's the best medical class you've taken and why? Thanks. Matt, your A1C is a measure of your sugar control over a period of time, and a value over 6 is a cause for concern. Your result of 9 is indicative of pretty high glucose levels at the time. For those who aren't aware, type 2 diabetes is usually the result of your body's resistance to pancreatic insulin. Insulin is required to move sugar, also known as glucose, into cells. There it is stored and later used to produce energy for the body. In type 1 diabetes, there's a failure or death of the pancreatic cells that make insulin. This causes an absolute deficiency of the hormone, but in type 2, there is insulin produced. Your body, however, decides to resist its effects, and that results in elevated sugar levels called hyperglycemia. Over time, hyperglycemia causes damage to various organs, including the heart, kidneys, eyes, and nerves. My son has a severe case of type 1 diabetes, but we're talking about type 2 today. If there's a good example of an epidemic disease, type 2 diabetes would be it. In the U.S., there are 24 million diabetics, and the grand majority of them are type 2. This number should more than double by the year 2050, both in the U.S. and worldwide, affecting more than half a billion people according to the World Health Organization. This means that millions will be dependent on oral medicines like metformin or insulin injections to stay healthy. In the event of a true disaster, this translates into big problems when the pharmaceuticals run out. Type 2 diabetes has many symptoms. These include lethargy, weakness, low energy, distorted or blurred vision, excessive thirst, frequent need to urinate, dry, itchy skin. These are just some of the things that you might see in people with type 2 diabetes. Now, here are some things that you can do to improve your chances of doing well with it. 
exercise. Now, being obese or overweight is a pretty significant risk factor for type 2 diabetes. You didn't tell me what your weight was, Matt, so I don't know. But it can also be a symptom of the disease as well. By incorporating exercise into their lifestyles, diabetics might find it a little bit easier to get to a normal weight for their height and age. Even a weight loss of 10 or 15 pounds can be beneficial in helping to reduce the body's resistance to the effects of insulin. Of course, in a survival setting, losing that amount of weight is going to be part of the deal. And your exertion goes up just from doing activities of daily survival. So if the you-know-what hits a fan, you may not have much to worry about in terms of type 2 diabetes, depending on how bad it is. Exercise helps to regulate blood sugar levels. Try and do both cardiovascular training and resistance training since each of these types of exercises has their advantages and can help to improve diabetes as well as overall fitness. Exercise helps to control blood glucose. It also improves blood vessel function and it lowers the risk of additional complications. Of course, diet is a big thing for diabetics. Diabetics need to plan their meals in order to manage their blood sugar levels. This is a big lifestyle change, but it's also an important one. The foods you eat will raise your blood sugar in different amounts. Diabetics want to avoid spikes in their blood sugar levels. Fresh fruits and vegetables are always good, while sweets and refined carbohydrates should be minimized. Concentrate on food storage that is high in protein and limited in carbohydrates. Portion control is important also if you want to see an improvement in your symptoms. So perhaps we should look at what foods might have a lowering effect on blood sugar. Now, there are quite a few that might be helpful, that is, if used in moderation. Now, some will surprise you. I'm going to mention them, but for more detail, go to my article at doomandbloom.net called 13 Foods That Can Help Diabetics. Avocados, olive oil, eggs, cherries, blueberries, cinnamon, spices like turmeric, fenugreek, cumin, ginger, mustard, chia seed, Oatmeal, non-starchy vegetables such as broccoli, spinach, and green beans. Vinegar, lean meats, club soda. Making the right food choices can make a big difference with regards to your health, and good nutrition can keep your glucose levels from going over the brink. Sleep, that is so important. Some studies shown that diabetics and sleep apnea are related. Obstructive sleep apnea is a condition where you stop breathing temporarily when you sleep. It causes a disruptive night's sleep, and these pauses, they can last just a few seconds, but they typically occur 5 to 30 times every hour for people who have significant cases. This results in poor quality sleep and tiredness during the day, and that's going to affect your ability to exercise, and it's going to eventually affect your ability to control your diabetes. And also there's insulin and medications. You're not on injectable meds like insulin, Matt, and your chances are good that you'll stay away from it as a result of your good job, lifestyle changes, and your dietary changes. I would store metformin, which I believe will stay shelf-stable for longer, maybe a lot longer than its expiration date, and certainly longer than liquid insulin. Store in a dark, dry, cool place. At worst, it may lose potency slowly, and you may need to take more than again, it may need to take less with everything that you're doing, and especially with all the changes, dietary restriction, and exertion you're going to do in a survival setting. You should know that my suggestion to store expired insulin is the opposite to what you'll be told by most medical professionals. I base my opinion on the Shelf Life Extension Program results from the Department of Defense, something I've written about for about a decade now. You should, however, do your own research, come to your own conclusions. Nothing I say constitutes medical advice. It's just the opinion of a crotchety old man. This is Joe Alton, MD, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Oh, my best medical class? Well, I've been to quite a few of them. I've given quite a few of them. And I guess one of the ones that I like was the certification for advanced wilderness expedition provider provided by the Wilderness Medical Conference guys. They are awesome, and they give you a really good idea of what to do in wilderness settings, get people out. It's not actual true survival, as, as in the end of the world kind of medical class, but it's a very useful class, and it's something that I would recommend. Hey, don't forget to check out our entire line of medical kits, individual supplies, books, and more at Nurse Amy's store at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. We thank you for listening to the Survival Medicine Hour with Joe and Amy Alden. We'll see you next time.
You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.